This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay speak with producer and musician Steve Fisk. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 181, 181 episodes of our podcast into season four. And Jay, we have a first on this episode. Oh, that's good. After 180. After 180 episodes, we've actually found something that we haven't done before. (laughs) Um, Excellent. Yes, we've interviewed... A lot of musicians. We've interviewed um, people who have directed music videos. We've authors of music. Uh, we've interviewed journalists, podcasters, bloggers, you name it. We've never had someone from uh, the studio side, from a production, mixing, engineering side of the equation. And that's one of the things we've talked about a lot while doing these 180 episodes. But we've never actually talked to anyone about how that works in terms of all the things that go into making a record other than, you know, writing the music. So we decided to break the uh, ice and um, talk to someone with a long and storied career in music industry. Joining us for this episode is Steve Fisk, who people might know from a variety of production work with bands like Nirvana, Soundgarden, um, soul coughing, screaming trees, just to name a few, and then his own work as a solo artist and with um, bands such as we're friends with uh, P- Pigeonhead. So, welcome, Steve Fisk. Steve, thank you for joining us. Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. As you mentioned in the you know, prior show, we're we're fans of a lot of the work that you've done. So it's a great uh, opportunity to talk to you, pick your brain a little bit. I mentioned that we've never had anybody. Who's been on the, um, you know, the producer engineer side of things? So, in you know, reviewing records and talking about them over the years, we've had an opportunity to hear different things going on in in the records that you know sometimes can make a record, and sometimes can and break a record in terms of you know how much we enjoy it or how much our listeners might enjoy a record. So, I'm curious, uh, what was your, in terms of your musical background? your first encounter with recording? Well, I uh, was lucky enough to be one of the people fooling around with analog synthesizers in the early 70s, and they pretty much needed tape machines. The early synthesizers could make one or two things happen at a time, but to do any kind of work that uh, there was like... Everything that was being released at the time was a synthesizer tied to some kind of multi-track, whether it was an 8-track or a 16-track or a 24-track. And uh, so if you had a synthesizer in 1974, you had to find a friend with a tape machine. That can, that kind of thing con- continued for years. I was looking for some place that had uh, tape machines, and that got me into college where there were synthesizer studios. And I uh, studied you know, on some of the old Moog systems, the ones you see in photographs that are, you know, three giant black panels with wires all over them. So I got pretty good at that stuff. Uh, I went to Long Beach City College and later on uh, I went to the Evergreen State College, which uh, 
had a similar system up here in Washington. I got to Washington kind of through some stuff that's too complicated, not even worth getting into now. But uh, it landed me at the Evergreen State College, my synthesizer path or whatever. And uh, the uh, radio station there was uh, pretty radical for its time period. And they played, you know, tried to play 99% independent records. And that was right when America was uh, experiencing a giant uh, surge of, you know, independent recordings from all over the cities in America, as well as the stuff coming in from England. And uh, I ended up recording bands. I ended up recording punk rock because I knew how to run tape machines. So uh, that's pretty much it. You know, I, I, you know, somebody had to record bands. Nobody else knew how to run tape machines. It was me. Uh, <laughs> so I, I learned the hard way with several... Uh, experimental strange records, some of which have been reissued back then, the Beakers, and, uh, oh, I won't even get into all of it, but yeah, some of my really embarrassing work from 1980-81 has come out again. Are uh, you talking about format and stuff that was originally on cassette? Those no, releases? vinyl. Oh, vinyl, okay. No, vinyl. Yeah, no, I, I released my own stuff on my own label in 79. Uh, I... Shortly after that, was part of the group started a small record label called Mr. Brown Records, and we put out local bands, uh, or bands from Olympia and bands from Seattle, and we also did a few compilations, some of which were cassette, some of which were vinyl. And, and so how did you get into uh, the synthesizer? I mean, at that point in time, it wasn't a very accessible instrument, right? I mean, I'm sure it was very expensive and, and slightly difficult to get your hands on. How did you get into that instrument? You know, uh just something about the sonics of it appealed to me. I was a piano player and, you know, played in bands and things like that. But, uh, you know, it was the thing where, like, you know, it was really strange. Like, I learned how to recognize what synthesizers sounded like on records. And then, uh, I, I don't know, from there, it just it was something I had to pursue. They did make mini Moogs and Arp Odysseys, which were prohibitively expensive for most people. But uh, my dear mother... Uh, probably in a fight with my dad uh, took some money that she'd earned as a substitute teacher and bought me an Arp Odyssey which was wow. about $1,100 in 1974 that's a lot of money wow yeah for school teachers what was some, that's uh, a lot of money absolutely what was some of the music that you were you were hearing synthesized around at that around that time that inspired you well, everything. I mean, if I want to sound hip, I could talk about the Stevie Wonder records, which I certainly spent a lot of time listening to. And they, my God, mm -hmm. they were on the radio. And sonically, they were very amazing. But, you know, the Beatles, I mean, before the Beatles stopped being the Beatles, they'd done some amazing orchestration, uh, you know, things with a uh, large mode system that they had. Uh, there were all the synthesizer records that had come out back then, uh, you know, switched on Bach and all the related things were all, you know, just amazing explorations of, you know, what you could do with the synthesizer, you know, uh, you know, redoing, you know, ancient Bach, which, you know, all worked mathematically. It was sort of made for synthesizer just because of all the intense mathematics and precision. And so, yeah, I love that. I love the Brandenburg, you know, synthesizer. Walter Carlos, who uh, now is Wendy Carlos, which is another complicated story. But, uh, yeah, Walter Carlos was tremendously... The inspirational, the sonics are really, really strong. I also was into this, I, God, this is just record collector shit, but there's this amazing composer that's still doing music. His name is Morton. That's Morton Sabotnik. And he has been doing amazing records with synthesizers and computers, you know, since 
1970 or something like that. Did you get into the the German stuff, like the kraut work, the craft work, and the and new and those sorts of bands? You know, I uh, was a dumb kid, and I like progressive rock. And I had some older friends in the record store that tried to get me into Noi and some other bands. And uh, you know, I just didn't. I wasn't into minimalism at the time. You know, I I was a piano player, and I was into all this florid, crazy, you know. Uh, progressive rock and jazz fusion and all of that. So the, the minimalist thing from Germany just didn't hold any weight for me then. Years later, it became important. Uh, Pell-Mell, you know, uh, the kraut rock thing was a big influence on Pell-Mell. And uh, later on, I recorded the Geraldine Fevers doing You Do Right on their second album, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> was supposed to be a single, but the label didn't see it that way. They managed to get it down to four minutes. That stuff was oddly available at the time. I mean, Kraftwerk really didn't happen until God. When was the first first Kraftwerk record that came out over here? The, the first one that was the Trans Europe Express. That was seventy four, seventy five, something like that. They just playing history lesson here. So when did you transition from? You know, you were putting out your own stuff in the early eighties, and you have a, a few credits for working on some things, but then you start working. Like in the mid '80s, on um, some Screaming Tree stuff, and I think that's probably the first um, band that you work with consistently. Hey, I think it sounds it's... like Scott... uh, there, there's a gap there. Could you repeat the question, please? Yeah, like, you got me to the '80s and the Screaming Trees. That that was a band that you worked with consistently um, throughout the '80s on on a number of releases, and then you also worked with some other artists. How did you transition from doing your own stuff and releasing stuff on your own label to? working with bands on a consistent basis in the mid-80s and then on? Well, I uh, I was still doing my own music then, oddly enough, uh, and I didn't have... I actually helped start the label that Premium Trees came out on, but I didn't release any of my own music on that. The whole story of you know how I got to Ellensburg in the first place was very... It, it's been told a lot. I could tell you it again, but I, I basically was looking for someplace to get out of Los Angeles. And uh, I ended up moving to Ellensburg a couple times in my life. And the second time I moved there, there was a recording studio and plenty of work to do. And I kept working on my own music, and that's where I was putting on my solo cassettes on K, and then later, uh, you know, 448 Deathless Days on SST. Both me and the Screaming Trees are both on SST at the same time. So roughly how old are you at this point? Are you in your 20s when this is going on? I am... 32. Okay. So you, I guess one of the things I've always been curious about, you know, musicians, because Jay and I were both musicians for about 10 years playing in bands, but we both maintained sort of regular jobs while we were doing it. And it seems like there is a, a different mentality when it comes to people who 
basically decided at some point, you know, I'm not going to work an office job. I'm going, you know, I'm not going to sit in a cubicle. I'm going to go ahead and commit myself 100% to this. And I, I, was there a point at which you were in high school or college or at some point you said, I'm not this just doing music is what I'm going to commit myself to 100% and I'm not going to like fall back into doing something in an office or was it always sort of tenuous that you weren't, you weren't sure and you might go either way with it? Uh, the latter, it was always tenuous. The idea that I could make a, a living at it didn't really seem real until like 1994. Really? Yeah. And I was always doing things to augment my income the whole time through the 80s and into the early 90s. I mean, if you work in a recording studio, there's a thousand things you can do besides doing something cool. You know, <laughs> uh, I know how to run a soldering iron, you know, so that was a little gift uh, that I got through a few other trades. I actually knew how to run a soldering iron. So if you worked in a recording studio or wanted to work in a recording studio, you'd run a soldering iron uh, there. You know, they would say, okay, we'll take him on. He can fix the broken shit, stuff like that. So, so yeah, I mean, I spent a long time in small rooms fixing broken shit, you know? So when you were working with artists, were, were you working with them as the band approach you or is it the label that would approach you about, we want you to work with an artist. How does that work exactly? These days, it's almost always the band, uh, but there there are still situations where the labels make the introduction and all of that. A lot of times it's bands that like records I've done, so they come to me because they like records I've done. Are there certain records that come up often in terms of what they like? Okay. No one wants to sound like the Screaming Trees. Everybody loves those records, but nobody wants to sound. No one has ever come to me saying they wanted to sound like the Screaming Trees. Uh, people love the Beat Happening records, but you know nobody sounds like Beat Happening. So that's you know I've never recorded a band that was remotely like Beat Happening or anything. Maybe Tree People. Maybe I get some some stuff in, because I did the Tree People. And you've worked with a lot of artists at. I guess you should say different points in their career. Some are, you know, new artists putting out their first record and some might be, you know, bands that have a couple records done, um, a couple records into their careers. Do you have a preference? Do you like working with new artists or artists that are, are more established? No, no, there's good things about it. All those situations. I'm sorry to give you a short answer, but no, I, I really no, don't have okay. a preference. Okay. And, in terms of when you're working with an artist, is there like a, I guess like a, a courting period where you sit down with them before you even go into the studio and sort of talk about what their goals are? Or is it pretty much you walk into the studio the first day with them? Well, no, there's a thing called pre-production. So most people really can't afford to do pre-production anymore unless, you know, um, they're working on the second or third record on a label or something that... Yeah, you talk to people ahead of time, you listen to stuff, stuff they've done before, you listen to demos. You know, I, I used to try to meet somebody before I, you know, take their money and go record them. So uh, so there's a lot of, uh, not courting so much, it's just making sure it makes sense. You know, I mean, uh, it's the first time you talk to anybody that's recording stuff. Well, because they recorded Nirvana, all kinds of nut jobs and confused people wanted to work with me for all the wrong reasons. And, uh, you know, if they start off talking about Nirvana, you can pretty much assume that, you know, God, have you really heard the shit I did for Nirvana? It doesn't sound like Team Spirit, you know. <laughs> it's a pretty grim, you know, you know, 
three guys in a room sound, you know, and all of that. And 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 even that was a problem more like with A and R men and things in the in the '90s. You know, there were only so many people that recorded Nirvana, so I think some misguided people sought out my uh, talents, thinking you know if they worked with me, they would have a hit record or something like that. But uh, that's that's that just goes with the beast, I suppose. That stopped now. That doesn't happen anymore. Right. Because none of those guys, none of those guys have jobs anymore because there isn't a music business anymore, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Have you ever sat down with an artist at, at during that pre-production period after you, like, you heard the music and you said, okay, well, let's sit down and then realized I don't want to work with these people, like, just have a personality conflict based on that first meeting? I've seen some things that scared me and made me not want to work with them, but not so much like a personality conflict or something like that. What do you mean by scared you? Oh, just, uh, you know, maybe who they choose to quote or who the references are or something like that, you know, uh, or the, or records they like or something. I mean, you know, it, it's frightening when you're getting ready to work with somebody that likes you, too. You know, you have to really assume something good is going to happen, you know, because <laughs> you, can see, cause you can see other good things in what they're doing besides the fact that they like you, too, you know. <laughs> uh, um, so that's a that's a that's a red light for you yeah yeah you too uh, god bless dave matthews i mean i fucking vote for him durant or you know lieutenant governor up here or something like that but generally the people i run into that like dave matthews probably shouldn't be working with me you know i can i can understand that yeah and once <laughs> again that's all respect to dave matthews and the music he makes i just don't think i've got anything to do with that so when you're picking, you're you're really gonna, you know, be honest with someone and say, "Look, I respect what you're doing as an artist, but I don't necessarily think that we're the right match." Like, do you have to sort of put your, I guess, concerns about a job behind the fact that like you can't emotionally or or you know commit to something psychologically. Um, if it's just not something that is of interest to you rather than, you know, whether or not they're throwing enough money at you for it? Uh, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you know, it, it, I mean, you know, that, that's, you know, you can't lie to people. My little, my, 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 my sense is, I say, I don't think I can bring anything to your music. You know, and, and I think that's, that's a fair way to put it, you know, if, if there's, if there's anything I can, I can work with here, or if you're asking for something that I don't think can be done in the budget you've got, things like that, you know. That's a diplomatic it's way more of saying like it. real, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's also kind of the realism of independent music. I mean, you know, I don't do high budget records anymore. I don't think anybody does. So you have to, you know, be frank with, you know, people about like, look, this is what we can do for this kind of money. You know, you look at what I'm doing, you know, I mean, if somebody comes into me and when they, they really like Nine Inch Nails and they're saying Nine Inch Nails, Nine Inch Nails, and well, why do you want to work with me? I haven't done anything that sounds like Nine Inch Nails, you know? Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but, but, but yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, you have to keep working and it's harder to do than it has ever been. And I get told this all the time. I'm one of the few people that are still doing it, especially people my age that have actually stayed busy and can put in the long hours and do all of this stuff. And you know, it's it's a it's a definitely it's it's Russian roulette. You know, it's getting the, the herd is it's musical chairs. There's less and less chairs all the time. So so yeah, you have to keep working. But yeah, I got into this you know 
I got a certain kind of chemical flows in my brain when I'm working on music, you know, and it's got to be something I can get into or bring something to, you know. Uh, I do a really a, a wide variety of stuff. I mean, I've been doing more and more hip hop the last four years, and while I've been able to dally in hip hop from time to time, you know, over the last 20, 25 years, and, you know, the background of Pigeonhead and all of that, but I've never really been asked to do an awful lot of that, and I've been big passion for hip-hop but you know, my god you know hip-hop can come in so many flavors you know it's like no i don't want to work on that I don't want to work on that but i've been lucky enough to, to find some things i find very inspiring there's a new group up here called the Yardbirds, and uh, that means yeah you get to laugh but the, the, the hip-hop duo they're very serious they're political they're great rappers and uh and i think they believe the Term Yardbirds is bigger than what Jeff, that Jimmy Page, and Eric Clapton brought to it. So uh, nothing like some attitude, you know. Wow. And I've also been working with a band in Portland, uh, the Spitting Images. I've been doing mixing for them at the three projects. Uh, much more pop, and also really, really good rappers, and they have a lot of great arrangements. And uh, and for being, well, they're not trying to be mainstream, but they're trying to make pop music and. Uh, I don't know. I, I have a blast working on it. They're really great people. I, I, I have a lot of fun. So, uh, so are you so creating? I answering your question the wrong way around. And 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 to ask where to go next. Some of the stuff I mix. Some of the stuff I get asked to put together beats. I'm writing beats for the Yardbirds right now. Uh, they like Pigeonhead. They like Jesse Bernstein. You know, they ask me huh. to write beats. How about that? You know. Speaking of Pigeonhead, it just gives me an opportunity to, to ask some questions about that. How did that collaboration come about? Working with Sean Smith. Well, I had done demos for Sean uh, earlier on that uh, uh, Sub Pop was underwriting. And so Sean and I had spent a lot of time at the music stores, this 24 track up on Capitol Hill that uh, I worked at in the early 90s. Sorry, that's a long, complicated answer to your question. But after I finished the Bernstein record, uh, Prison by Stephen Jesse Bernstein, uh, Sean and I got about talking about doing some work together because he liked the programming and the beats and the rhythm sections on the Bernstein record. A lot of people did. Uh, it was uh, probably an important record for me in some ways. Now, I read that for the first Pigeonhead record that you guys rented a store to record that and some of the like ambient noise, like fire engines and, and stuff like that, is actually vehicles that had like driven by that you recorded. Is that true? Uh, that's, uh, I think I know what the writer was trying to say. I lived in a storefront, okay? Okay. Uh, on the ground floor of a busy street in Seattle, and yeah, we have a song where a siren got in at the beginning of the song, and it sounds gangster and everything, but it actually was a siren driving by on the street, probably an ambulance.
and so for that record and and i guess for the second one are you putting together the music and then sean is coming up with lyrics separately like are you giving him music to write over or is that something where you guys are in the studio together creating those tracks and he's writing as you're going um the latter except uh he's involved in the beats and the keyboard parts and everything else a lot of people assume he's just the singer but uh but no, the, the rhythm sections come together between the two of us and the okay. and all of that. Now, that's a thing where maybe I've got a few years on him, so for a period of time I was better at it than he is, but, you know, uh, that's no longer the case. Well, we talked to him, we actually talked to him, I guess, two years ago about the first Satchel record, and he was saying that he would write, he would sort of like get music from the band and, and they'd be in the studio and write a song and he would sort of just come up with lyrics on the spot was that the case with you where he would do a lot of the lyric writing like in the moment or would he t- go yeah. off with stuff okay no almost everything was written there i mean he may you know have had some things he was had in his head or something but now it, it all happened on the spot especially that first kitchenhead record because we we're doing so much coloristic distortion and and manipulation of his voice that he would write to what the sound was there's quite a bit of a, a leap from I, I think personally from the first record to the second record um, it seems like a lot of the first record was driven by, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like it's a much more like tape um, oriented record with things being cut up, and and the second record seems like much more of like a synthesizer and like more of like programmed. Is am I off base on that? Because um, they don't have the necessarily the same sonic feel to me, even though they're not that far apart in terms of. I think there's like three or four years apart, uh, but they sound like almost two different eras of electronic music. Well, the first one, the first one was home studio, uh, the storefront. And while I did have the tape machine, the, um, the, the, uh, majority of, of the keyboards and the loops were all, you know, coming out of the samplers at the time period, but the sub pop had rented us, uh, an eight track and a beautiful, API mixing desk, a small one that only had 12 inputs, but it still, you know, uh, it gave us a sound. And I have to say that record was a good record, but the mastering probably brought it, took the last 30% into shape on it. Uh, it, it was pretty grimy home studio record. And, and it was mixed over long periods of time where I'd even mix up and, you know, go do something else and come back to it three days later, stuff like that, where the, the second record was done in a, in a real-life 70s recording studio, uh, Bad Animals, here in Seattle on a 24-track, and we had, you know, help from wonderful players like Cedric Ross and Matt Chamberlain and Jim Trial and Jerry Contrell and um, Reggie Watts and um, people you guys don't know. But, uh, but yeah, that was, that was much more of a studio record, and it happened really quick. And John Goodmanson was a big part of it. John Goodmanson engineered, co-produced the record, and so he was the the sounding board that all the ideas came came out of, and uh, you know had a lot to do with the sonics of it as well. I, I would say that the second record is, um, even though it's still a lot of it's put together in the studio, it's still more of a song record where the first record was more about sonics. Yeah, maybe that's the maybe that's the way I should have described it because there definitely is more of a a song aspect like you said, with the second record. One of those songs ended up um, getting remixed by Low Fidelity All-Stars and then like getting used in a number of different 
I remember it was in like a movie trailer for a Ben Affleck movie or something. And what was your role in terms of, do you basically just hand off the track to the Low Fidelity All-Stars or are you working with them on that? Or how does that work exactly when your song gets remixed um, by an outside group? Well, that was something that our A&R Jason Reynolds made happen. And he had a lot of connections in the writing, drum and bass, jungle, um, house music when they were blowing up then. Maybe that was a little late for house music. Uh, so he basically had stems put together and, and uh, asked a myriad of remixers. I think maybe 12, 15 different remixers did Kitchenhead uh, remixes. And that's the Cavalcade Emergency Overflow record. That's the remix record that came out after uh, right after Full Sense. And the Lo-Fi All-Stars was the one that broke. Um, well, I guess we're lucky in that one. But no, it was all done work for hire. And, and uh, you know, we sent out the Kitchenhead record and people picked the songs they wanted to work on and didn't have much to do with it. And no, I, I've never met the Low Fidelity All-Stars. Uh, they tried to sue us for the publishing when the song became a hit. And uh, I could probably... Really? Right about them for the rest of the interview, but uh, but uh, no, uh, you know that's a very very interesting situation where they tried to launch their career based on the remix, and of course they didn't have Sean Smith in the band, so they made a, a vinyl of his vocals and went around the country doing the remix with Sean off of a disc. Uh, which I respect the old school technology, but it, they're they're kind of kind of sleazy. Okay, <laughs> I'll say that on the radio. I'll say that on the internet. You know, I'm, yeah, look at all the all stars are kind of sleazebags, and 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 I'm, I'm very happy that the song did that well. And you know, I wish it didn't have to be acrimonious, but that's how it was. Yeah, it's a very. Um, it, I think for music fans, it's a very confusing situation because, I mean, the song is. It's a pigeonhead song. I mean, the vocal is. I'm sure there's instrumentation that's you know on the original track, but yet it's their name on it. And I can't remember when it came out how much pigeonhead was credited, but it didn't seem like very much. You know, it seemed like Low Fidelity All Stars was wholly taking credit for the song, and it obviously was. You know, it was they remixed it, but it was not theirs from a publishing standpoint. So that's shocking to hear that they actually sort of tried to change history a little bit. <laughs> well, um, I think that's a little bit of Sony trying to promote them a certain way in America. And, you mm-hmm. know, fans aren't, aren't really in control of how they're perceived or anything. But, but, uh, and, but yeah, I mean, low fidelity all-stars are good. You know, the records are good, but they're not, you know, they don't have anything in front of battle flag. And, mm-hmm. and it's interesting, you know, there's this band in uh, Belgium called Arsenal that loves Sean and Sean sings all over their records and they have a great relationship and he's shown up in their videos and everything. <laughs> so it doesn't have to be this bad scene, but you know, money was right. being made. And the thing that I, wow, I don't want to get too much into the gripe about this, but the, the song Battle Flag in the studio became an homage to Prince. And there's heavy interpolation, not sampling, from his uh, track Sexuality from the Controversy record. And the Low Fidelity All-Stars did the whole remix without understanding that the chorus they were sampling and uh, a lot of other stuff all came from a Prince record. And I think for a band that's DJ-based and not know what Prince sounds like, mm. you know, is, is, is pretty unbelievable, you know. And then at the same time, 
the idea that they think they'd own something because they remixed it. I mean, remixes have been going on for a long time before the Low Fidelity All-Stars did a remix, and no remixer is ever asked for publishing. That's the whole point. That's why it's a right. remix. Right. And usually and, in that situation... And that, oh, go ahead. You go ahead, Tim. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, usually in that situation, the remix would have been credited, still credited to the original band, so it would have been, you know, promoted as Pigeon Battle Flag by Pigeonhead, maybe remixed by Low Fidelity All Stars, and this seems to have yeah, been but, completely pivoted. Yeah, yeah. Well, Pigeonhead wasn't on Sony. Low Fidelity All Stars were on Sony, and they were mm-hmm. promoting a Sony record. Mm-hmm. But the remix is their featured track. I mean, Salt and Pepper broke on a remix. You know, not that I consider Pigeonhead even remotely in the league of Salt and Pepper, but uh, but you know, remixes are good things. You know, I like remixes. I like doing remixes. I love doing remixes for Soundgarden. You know, which don't remotely resemble Soundgarden songs, but you know, uh, you know, remixes are cool. And and the idea that you would take a fragment or a piece of something and then make a whole new track out of it—that's something that all kinds of remixes were doing back then. Local LA All Stars weren't, you know. Uh, weren't alone in that regard. Uh, and you can listen to a Pigeon remix record and hear all the strange things people did with Pigeon and records back then. But, uh, but yeah, it's um, it's unfortunate. And I expect they're young and probably had bad advice. Sure. But that sounds so, like a, an old man talking. Forgive me. <laughs> well, no, I think it's... It, 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 even now, I think, you know, obviously remixing is still going on, and, but it seems like that was a very unique situation in terms of how they kind of try to really take credit for things they didn't do. And um, so when, when you're in that situation, um, you mentioned you, you, you embrace remixing um, as an art form. When you're on the other end of it and your music's being remixed, what are your feelings going into you know hearing what somebody else has done with it? And um, specifically on that track, what did you think the first time you heard it? And what do you think now? I love the organ solo. Um, I thought all the spoken word stuff was bullshit. I thought it was just big five-syllable words that rhyme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, same time, I thought it kind of rocked, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that the main groove was taken from one of my favorite Billy Cobham records. That's how dumb I am, but that bomb, bomb, for anybody that knows the remix. After listening to it for years, I saw an internet site that explained where the sample came from, and I went, like, shit, I had that record. So, <laughs> good on them for, for, for getting it past me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I manipulate to recreate this air to go around Saga. Go under my camera.
the thing with the gripes me is that I get credit for that organ solo. People love the organ solo. So yeah, I I love doing organ solos, but that that kid's badass. The organ solo at the end of a Lo-Fi All Stars remix is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't do it. Well, you can just be like, thanks, and then move on. You can always just... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's what I do, for God's sake. Yeah, I mean, you... This is an interview, so I'm getting into details. I, I'm very... Right. When people tell me how much they like the remix on the street, I think thank you very much, you know. Um, so we're running up against our time here. I know you've got to, to run, and I've got to run, too. I just want to ask one last question. This is probably a one that you get a lot. I'm, wonder, I'm curious as to your favorite, or, or not favorite a record that you've produced that you're most proud of? Well, you know, I think that's a, a thing that always is hopefully exceeding itself. You know, I don't, I, I don't point back to something 15 years ago and say that's the best record, you know. Um, I'd have to say the full sentence by Pigeonhead is one of the my favorite things I've worked on. I'm also really stoked with the uh, record I recorded part of for Three Mile, uh, for Three Mile Pilot. It, we started on Geffen and we did a lot of really cool work and ultimately it uh, ended up on a, on a smaller label but uh, I think there's some really cool stuff happened with that uh, both the Geraldine Timbers records and Virgin or I think they're kind of what I hope albums should sound like you know I, I think they both are great examples of musicians really working for the song at the same time it's a band that you know rocks hard and plays most of their stuff live vocals live a good deal of the time uh, when the curtain hits the cast, you know, for low. I mean, I, I, I loved working on, on, on that. Recently, uh, I did an EP for Special Explosion that's on top shelf now. It's getting played on your kids' internet. Uh, I think that record came out great. As far as producing, like, you know, going in and making sounds and all of that, there's a record by the Sea Cats from Kelso that uh, came out uh, late last year that uh, I'm very, very proud of, and I feel good about everything on that record. Uh, so that's part of the job, you know, is you feel good about everything you're working on, you know. Uh, recently, I'm just completing, I just completed mixing a record for Sean Nelson from Hardy Danger, where I did mixing and oh, some fix-its and a little bit of retrapping, but I, I didn't produce the record at all. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a Harry Nelson tribute. John Nelson singing Harry Nelson songs and it's fucking amazing and uh, I feel I had a small part of that but, uh, but I think that's a very important record people haven't heard it yet you know when the Nelson documentary came out all these Nelson records came out and that was very very cool but I think the, the John Nelson Harry Nelson record is probably a high water mark for you know Nelson worship and, they, and he didn't go for the sucker punches. He, he played a lot of very interesting obscure songs as well as some of the ones people did. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I've got I've got all kinds of things I'm stoked about. And the Yardbirds record, I think, is going to be amazing. I don't, you know, it's not done, but I'm, I'm very happy with where it's starting. And uh, been doing some pretty abstract programming and beats for them, and they're totally digging it and bringing it, and we're we're having a really good time. So, so. I tried to give you a long list when you asked what my favorite thing is, but you also told me to plug the stuff I'm down with. You know, I mean, Special Explosion is, you know, it's pretty much a live record of overdubs, and most of the band was 17 or 18 when they recorded it, and it's just phenomenal. Sea Cats is a studio record where we recorded, you know, drums and guitar, drums and bass first, and then parsed it all together with thousands of overdubs, and... Uh, great work from other people uh, that play in the Seacats, an amazing keyboard player, whatever, you know. 
uh, and that was an odd situation where the label introduced me. The, the Sea Cats were actually not very interested in me or working with me at the time, and their label thought it was a good idea. And, uh, and uh, it, it turned out great. The new Survival Life record, I don't know if you, you guys know about that, Survival Life? No, I'm not familiar. Jay, are you? No, Survival, sorry, Survival Life. Survival Life, it's the two guys that started Unwound. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And uh, they're on Glacial Pace, uh, a label in Portland, and they have a new record, and it's, I got to mix it. I didn't produce it, I just got to mix it, but it's an amazing record. It's really, really big and huge, and feels a little bit like Unwound, with almost like a mid-70s prog overlay, like, you know, hmm. a little bit of Zeppelin, a little bit of Hawkwind, uh, all kinds of stuff, you know, so... So yeah, I'm very, I'm very stoked about a lot of the things I'm working on right now, and I think I think some of them might be some of the best things I've done. So there. And and you've (laughs) done some cool stuff. I read with the Experience Music Project. Yeah, well, uh, that's another thing I'm wicked excited about. I, I, you know, about the movie uh, about a son, the Cobain documentary. Yeah. The uh, curator uh, of the Nirvana exhibit at the Experience Music Project, which only exists here in Seattle for you people listening on the internet, but it's Paul Allen's giant uh, arts and culture museum, and they had a big exhibit they were planning for Nirvana, and the curator really liked the soundtrack I had done because it wasn't a rock soundtrack. It was an atmospheric soundtrack that was more um, metaphoric than literal, and... Uh, I uh, scored it for 20 different speakers, 20 different channels. So we're not talking 5.1. We're talking 20 discrete audio channels being driven by a giant weird computer main brain down in a closet. And it's a, it, it turned out to be a very beautiful, evocative thing for this Nirvana exhibit, which is a... For all the things that have been said about Nirvana... Uh, this thing managed to say some new stuff and connected with the history. Uh, it's a, we talked about the exhibit for a while, but yeah, um, the success of that exhibit led into me being invited into some places where maybe things were a little bit outside my wheelhouse, but the fact that I knew how to make something effective for a room, for an environment, uh, that kind of sold me into these next two gigs where they did a, an exhibit about horror film which I'm a giant fan, but I certainly haven't written a lot of horror music. Uh, and I did a similar thing where I scored it for a, a weird matrix of speakers, some of them on the floor, some of them on the ceiling, and uh, the big ominous pounding thing that feels a little like Bernard Herman and a little bit like John Carpenter or something. Uh, and that led to me working on the fantasy exhibit where they did a, a, a whole room with artifacts and Themes and crazy interactives and stuff all about uh, the fantasy genre. And with that, I worked with Wayne Horvitz, a uh, very wonderful new music, jazz, downtown New York guy from the 80s that goes out here now. And so he did more of the um, more of the Disney aspect than I did more of his, the Philip Glass aspect of it. But, but it was you know, another very interesting very And it's all there now. So if you're ever in Seattle and, and want to kill an afternoon, uh, there's all kinds of interesting things in this giant, strange, it's a Geary building, you know, the, the architect is a strange, weird sort of metal tumor in the middle of the Seattle <laughs> skyline. Uh, so yeah, uh, working for Paul Allen, you know, 
stuck in the corporate dick, whatever. It was a fun thing to do. I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be doing anything else with these guys. They're all special projects. But yeah, I, um, I studied composition in college. So I ended up you know, doing some composer shtick. And oddly enough, in college, with the synthesizers I was working with, working in surround was a, already a given. We didn't have surround systems, but the original synthesizer, the synthesizers as an experimental music format, quad was, was a thing that started in the 60s. Two speakers in front, two speakers in back, and you make things pan, and you, you know, make things fly around or you create giant, you know, moving atmospheric clouds. I mean, that was stuff I was doing at Evergreen in the synthesizer studios, you know, in 1980, 81. So, oddly enough, it is what I studied in college. The idea that you're getting paid for it later on in life is a little strange because, you know, some people are strange shit. But, but to that extent, I guess that was in my wheelhouse. So, uh, I, I guess I'm belaboring the interview. I'm sorry, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's yeah, nice that... The, uh, that early work actually, you know, was is it being applied now? That you know, that you have an environment. Well, and I, well, and I did study how to be a composer. You know, I mean, that was, mm-hmm. I didn't learn how to write for strings and orchestras, and never really did any of that once I got out of college. But I mean, that was while I was, you know, doing my electronic work. Part of the electronic work was having a more traditional music orientation. So yeah, I got, I got that there too. There's a wonderful. Do you guys know about KK and his Leather Underground? No. No. I'm feeling like okay. I'm, I'm getting schooled here. <laughs> uh, no, they're a new band. They're, they're, I mean, some of the people in the band are barely 30 now, but uh, that's the Seattle Brain Trust. Uh, the, the, the main keyboard player for Portugal, uh, KK is in Portugal, the man. But, uh, okay, that's the uh, name I know. I got the, yeah, I got to do some mixing for them, and everybody in KK and his Weathered Underground, I'll say that one more time, KK and his Weathered Underground, an easy name to Google, a hard name to spell all the way through, but uh, the string arranger, cellist of KK and his Weathered Underground has turned into a collaborator and a friend, and he's the guy that um, is a big part of me doing the, the uh, horror and the fantasy scores I came up with just really, really minimal strings in a MIDI format, and he turned them all into just beautiful orchestral parts. And his name is Philip Peterson. And uh, he's a string arranger and a producer here in town. And he was one of the main main uh, protagonists behind KK and his brother Underground, who went on stage with 10 people, French horn, viola, cello, violin. It was one of those bands. Mm. One of those those mid zeros bands. They kind of happened between I think 2004 and 2009, and petered out after that. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. All right, we have taken up enough of your time. We're we are we are actually over time. So um, I want to thank you, Steve, so much for coming on this Sunday morning and uh, dealing with our technical issues. And uh, appreciate it. And I want to. Um, encourage everyone to go to your website stevefist.com and check out there's some uh sound samples on there uh there's you know history links to a lot of the works that you've been involved with and when can we expect a new pigeonhead record the new pigeonhead record is completed it's mastered we're just putting the graphics together hopefully we'll be out in the fall on finn records here in seattle Awesome. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. I was hoping that it wasn't going to be like, oh, we're a couple years away. Fall? No, no. It's 2014. It's all put together. 
Awesome. That's great. Um, again, thank you. And uh, we really appreciate it. And want to uh, encourage everybody to check out all of Steve's work. So thanks again, Steve. Thanks. And, and I apologize ahead of time for how out of date my website is. Uh, I'll try to have something together. I'll try to update it in the next week or so. Uh, that's, a, that's a thing. Just keeping, keeping that current is, is weird. And, and even, yeah, even discogs and all of that, that's still missing like half of what I do. It's very strange. Uh, <laughs> the, the internet for being so thorough seems to be also kind of pretty inaccurate in some, to some degree. So who knows? No way. The internet doesn't isn't inaccurate in any way. <laughs> it's all completely true and accurate. That's what. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised you didn't ask me about Louisiana. Uh, some, uh, I grew up in L.A. Somebody translated it to Louisiana, so for years people were asking what it's like to grow up in Louisiana, <laughs> which would be cool. Yeah. But no, I didn't. You know. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Tim. Thanks, Jay. And. Uh, sure. And uh, good luck, and uh, good luck with 181, 182, you know. Thanks again, Steve. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. 